A couple quick things while I'm getting settled here. Uh, first of all, Cindy uh, told me to mention that we do have child care for that women's study. So if, uh, if that wasn't clear and that is a difference maker, sign up now because we do have it. So there's that. And then secondly, Journey fam, I want to talk to you real quick. If, I think all of us would say, man, we want our church to grow, right? We want our, more people to experience what we believe the Lord is doing here. Let me just give you a quick exhortation of how you can help with that uh, set up front. Okay? So if you're here and you're a Journey person, you like move a little closer. You don't have to do it right now, but in the coming weeks, just make a plan to come on up because here's the deal. We actually don't have a ton of seats. I mean, this is, I mean, we have, we have space for folks, but if you're coming in new and you're looking for a spot, the back is really full and it's awkward to come all the way up. So just saying, we as a family, we can make people feel more welcome by making sure when they come in, they can see open seats. Deal? We'll remind each other next week, right? All right, cool. Thanks. All right, so as we jump back in, we're jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount. Right, we did it before Christmas. We took a pause for Advent. Uh, we did, um, Derek t- took us through um, 17 through 20 a couple weeks ago, and then we paused again for Sanctity of Life. So we're just jumping back in, and Jesus is going to get right up in our business from here on out, right? So we're moving from theoretical and theological kind of, you know, these beautiful truths about Beatitudes, and Jesus is getting right down into our stuff now, into life, rubber meets the road, and he's going to start talking about things like anger and lust and things like that. And it it appears on the surface as though Jesus is tightening down the screws, doesn't it? So we're entering this section where Jesus is going to start saying, hey, you've heard it said, but I'm going to tell you, right? So he's going to talk about things like murder, and he's saying, yeah, yeah, it's true, you're not supposed to kill anybody, but actually... You can't get mad either. If you're angry at your brother, you're already guilty, right? And he's going to say, yeah, you're not supposed to be sleeping around and and committing adultery, but also when you lust after somebody, you're you're already guilty, right? He's going to be talking about divorce and revenge and all these things. And and it seems like he's raising the bar or, or kind of just tightening down the screws. He's taking this law that's always been hard for everybody to achieve or impossible, and it seems like he's cranking down even harder, doesn't it? But when we, when we see the context, when we see a little bit deeper into what Jesus is doing here, <clears throat> he's actually connecting or, or correcting first and then connecting. He's, when he says this, what we see right there in verse 21, you've heard it said, or you've heard that it was said to, the, to those of old, you shall not murder. But I tell you, right, when, when he says that, he's actually correcting uh, not the Old Testament itself, but a wrong interpretation and application of the Old Testament. Really, this whole next, really, for sure the rest of five and much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in general is is kind of an exposition of the verse that Derek walked us through a couple weeks ago where it says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is now going to be expositing that, taking us deeper and helping us see even more clearly what he's talking about. So he's not correcting the Old Testament itself. He's correcting their wrong interpretation and application of it. So he's, he's correcting this idea, and this is huge. We need to catch this, that, that religion is, is like some people think it's just something you can check in a box of a description right, of your preferences about who you are. Do you have a religious preference? Are you check Christian? But it doesn't really change me. It doesn't really affect me. Jesus is, is coming right at us and saying, no, no, if, if we're going to be following Jesus, if we're going to be a part of his kingdom, there's going to be transformation that happens. There's going to be change that happens. We don't get to just choose this as a thing that identifies us but doesn't affect us. 
How many of you thought that's kind of what Christianity was about at some point in your life, right? Just the, the external obedience of some rules, right? Yeah, I know I should probably be a Christian. And what that means is I know I should be a better person, right? I know I should go to church. I, I know I should live a little bit more morally and those sorts of things. I should follow these rules. Jesus is saying, hey, if that's all you're doing, you're missing the point and you're in danger of missing the whole kingdom. Okay, so what he's inviting us to when he says this, he's not actually cranking down the screws. He's inviting us to something better than rule following. He's inviting us to something better than just external obedience. He's inviting us to experience transforming grace, right? A faith that is not just worried about whether or not I break the rules, but rather actually what's going on inside of us, our hearts, our motives, our inner being that, that drives the behavior. Jesus is coming at that. He wants to set us free in there, too. He doesn't want to just make us these externally good-looking people that actually have all of this angst, all of this bitterness, all of this, you know, stuff inside of us. Like Derek, you know, illustrated for us a couple weeks ago, it's not just about the external looking good. It's about what's going on inside as well. So this is this, the gospel. It's not about managing or preventing behavior, right? We're not here to do, uh, you know, you know self-improvement and and, you know, 10 steps to a better you, or even, you're not even going to get five steps on how to avoid anger today. This is about transformation. This is about being invited to experience Jesus, the one who went to the cross and disarmed all of the rulers and, and authorities that we struggle against so that we could have freedom. This is what this is about. This is about dead people coming alive again, right? This is about stuck people getting unstuck. Anybody been stuck? Every year we, we, we do New Year's resolutions, right? And we're looking at stuff that we don't want to, you know, we don't want to be this anymore. We want to be something else. Jesus is saying this is the way to experience new life. He's about giving them new hearts. So he's correcting that misunderstanding when he says these things, but he's also connecting what the prophets have been saying for years. So he's correcting their misunderstanding, but he's also connecting what the prophets have been saying. So from the beginning, you know, the, the law was offered, right? And sort of the implicit theme in Matthew is that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. You know, so Derek talked about this. He explicitly mentions Abraham and David as, you know, pillars and fathers of the, the Israelite nations and how Jesus is fulfilling and culminating all that God promised to do in them. He doesn't mention Moses, who's a huge figure. But the reason is, is the whole book of Matthew is saying, hey, this is the new and greater Moses. So this is this is the Savior who's called up out of Egypt. You remember the Christmas story? Jesus has to leave. You know, baby Jesus is going to get killed. So they flee to where? Egypt, right? Jesus is brought up out of Egypt. He's then led into the wilderness, right? And he's brought up like Moses. He's used by God to rescue his people from slavery and to give them the law, right? So Moses does all of those things in Exodus. Jesus is paralleling them and then turning up the volume to bring in the new kingdom, the new covenant. And that's, that's the implicit message of Matthew. The kingdom is the theme of Matthew. I think it's used over 51 times or so, the kingdom of God in Matthew. And, and again, so Moses is used by God to bring the people up out of Egypt and then into the wilderness. And there on this mountain, Mount Sinai, right, um, God meets with them and tells them, hey, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and this is how you're going to live. In that moment, back in Exodus, God is forming him for himself a people, right? He's forming them saying, this is how we'll live. This is how you will live as my people. And, and you will live in such a way that the rest of the world will look at how you live and take note. That you'll be like a city set on a hill and the rest of the world's going to go, man, 
You see how they live? You see how they do life? You see how they, they, don't, they don't kill one another? You see how they don't backbite one another? They don't sleep around? You see how they, they live? They seem to have joy in the midst of, of, of hard circumstances. They seem to not be brought to despair whenever they experience loss. There's something going on with those people to the point that they would ask, what's going on? And, we would be, and they would be able to say, it's, it's our God, right? That's what God is doing in Exodus through Moses, giving them the law, giving them, hey, this is how we're going to live. He's forming for himself a people. Jesus is doing the same thing. Right? Jesus is on the mount, Sermon on the Mount. He's here, and he's giving the law, the, the, the new covenant, to his people. He's forming for himself a people. And so he's connecting, because from the minute that they get the law, right, they commit to obey it, they consistently fail. Right? And as they fail, they are, they are brought judgment. So you read the Old Testament, you're going to see this pattern. Right, this pattern of God rescuing, hearing their cries, rescuing, and then them failing, God bringing judgment, then he's restoring them, then failing, judgment, restoring, and it, and it goes over and over again. But each time that the judgment comes, it comes through somebody called a prophet. God speaks through these people to say, hey, this is what God's going to do. Because you failed to obey his commands that he told you would lead to life, he's now going to bring judgment upon you. But every time the judgment was brought, it was it was coupled with this promise of a greater hope. So every time they were brought judgment, they would be reminded by the prophets that one day God is going to do something better and greater to break this cycle of failure, judgment, restoration. That he was going to do something that would fix the root of the problem, that would, that would bring them into a relationship with God that would change them from the inside out. We see Jeremiah talk about this, where he says, God is going to, to take out their hearts of stone, our hearts of stone. There's going to be a day. Ezekiel talks about it. There's a valley of dry bones, right? He says, God's going to make them live again. Jeremiah talks about, he says, these people have a heart of stone. They cannot obey my law. But one day, I'm going to take out that heart of stone. I'm going to put it in a heart of flesh, and it's going to have new coating on it. It's going to be an upgrade, right? It's going to have the law of God is going to be written on their hearts so that they are compelled to live and obey him from the inside out. They've been told that this was going to happen, and a great Messiah would come, save them from their sins, and restore them into right relationship with God. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm here. This is happening. So when he's talking about this, this new kingdom ethic, he's not just raising the bar. He's not just trying to get more out of his people. He's saying, what Jeremiah promised you is happening in your midst. That now it's not just about external obedience to this law that's on tablets, but this, the law of God is going to be written on your hearts, and you're going to have an internal compulsion to obey from the inside out. Jesus said, this is happening in our midst. Okay, so we're going to go through a few different topics over the next few weeks, and he's going to say something like that. You've heard it said in the days of old, but I'm here to tell you. When you, do, when you hear that, don't think that Jesus is getting rid of the law. Previous passage just said, I'm not here to get rid of the law, I'm here to fulfill it. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to try to share a quick illustration that was helpful for me, uh, uh, borrowing it from my, my friend Brody Holloway, who's the pastor out at Snowbird. When he was talking about this, he said it's kind of like a couple different things. We'll look at one next week. We'll, we'll save that. But when you're learning, when, when you're learning a second language, or, or maybe not just set out to learn a second language, but when you're going to another country that speaks another language, um, you, you, you oftentimes will get a crash course in the essentials, right? Anybody gone somewhere that speaks another language and you've had somebody be like, all right, here's how you ask where the bathroom is, 
right? Here's how you tell them your name. Here's how you're polite. Don't offend them. Please don't say this, right? And then when you, right? So I've been uh, on Spanish-speaking mission trips a few times, and each time there's this sort of this crash course. Here's how you tell them your name, right? Here's how you ask where the bathroom is. I had no Spanish in high school or college. I just avoided it. I don't even think you're supposed to be able to graduate, but I did. Uh, I just avoided it. But when I go on these trips, they'd be like, Here, here's how you say this, right? And and, and here's how you kind of communicate. I'll learn a little bit more. And, and I've been with people that had some Spanish. They were a little bit, they were able to connect that. And here's the deal. When you're humble about that, the local people will work with you, right? They know you're trying. You sound like an idiot, right? Because you're just like using these phrases. And you're, even if you're a little bit more, if you know a lot of it, you're oftentimes just speaking in the present tense only. And you just sound, right? Because we don't know all of it. But you can communicate. You can get the point across. Or you can succumb to the temptation to just talk louder because that seems to be the barrier, right? Anybody else have that? When you go to another country, you go to a Mexican restaurant and they don't speak English and you just talk louder to them as though they're actually hard of hearing, not just, you know, different language. Don't do that. It, it, it's really not a good look. But we do that because we, we, we're, we're not sure how to communicate because we don't have all the nuances of the language, right? But so the law of God's kind of like that. So we have this Old Testament law, the the, the Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like that's, that's what the, the Israelite people were anchored their faith on. And that's all centered on the Decalogue, this delivering of the Ten Commandments, the delivering of the law. They're familiar with that. And Jesus is saying, I'm not getting rid of that. Those were good principles. Those were a good foundation. Those were good things to start. But what he's doing now is bringing in a, a whole new level. And it's, be, it's like we're going to now become fluent in the law of God. It's like overnight he plugged us into Rosetta Stone and we're now able to speak the law. Because when we are transformed from the inside out, we get the nuances of the law. We get the heart behind it. We get the context and we get the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening here in this moment. It's the difference between, it's not that we have to stop saying, we, we still say, where is the bathroom the same way, right? But now we know how to have conversations around it. We, and, and so Jesus is saying, this is what's happening in this moment when he's here to fulfill the law of God. And this is why he said, you heard it said this, but I'm here to tell you it's this, okay? So he's correcting and he's connecting. He's saying this promise from the prophets of old is coming true in our midst, in your presence today. The kingdom is here. This is the Beatitudes taking shape. This is what the kingdom people will live like. And he's going to say, this is how we as gospel people, as God's, Jesus's people, this is what our lives are going to be like. And it's a gospel not of doing. It's not a religion of rules and doing and accomplishing. It's a gospel of being. Right? So Jesus is going to be far more worried about who we are and our being than just what we're doing because he knows that what we do is driven by who we are. And if we can transform the root, the inner being, it will transform what comes out. Right? The same principle as out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're just trying to control the tongue, there's a whole lot of stuff still going on in here. Jesus said, I'm not worried about how you look externally. I'm not worried about just staying away from those laws. I'm coming for your heart. So if you look closely... Um, you'll, you'll notice that when Jesus says, you've heard it was said in the days of old, that he's not actually quoting directly from the Old Testament. When he does that, he will say, it is written. He does that a lot. He'll say, it is written, and he'll tell us something. So he, he's actually correcting uh, something that's 
again, interpretations of the Old Testament or common, um, you know, sayings of the day, you know, that people were familiar with, right? People really familiar with, you know, the saying, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible, just, just so you know, right? Um, cleanliness is next to godliness, also not in the Bible, right? But those are, those are common sayings in our culture that, that people, oh, yeah, that's right, that's good, right? Just not along. Jesus is sort of coming at some of those, and a lot of them are derived from the Old Testament, like the one we have today. So uh, in the Old Testament, it does indeed say, you shall not murder, right? That's there. Exodus 20:13. we looked at it last week. It says that. But does it say whoever murders will be liable to judgment? Well, actually, yes, but it's later in Numbers 35, 30, and 31, so it does say that, but notice by combining the two, the way that they had to make this sort of cultural statement, this one-liner throwaway, that they'd actually taken away so much of the heart and the content of what God actually intended to be, because here's what they're doing. When God's original command had so much more content and richness and nuance behind it, um, about the motives in our heart, they reduce it down to, hey, you shouldn't murder because if you murder, you'll be in danger of being punished or judged by the civil magistrates. So what they've sort of said is, hey, don't murder. If you do, you can be judged in the court of law and sentenced to death or life in prison, right? That's sort of what they said. Hey, we shouldn't murder because if you do, you might get caught, and if you get caught, you'll be punished. But Jesus doesn't let us off that easy. Right? He's not content with people just avoiding loading the gun, right? But he actually wants to come at the brewing and the stewing and the hating one another and the bitterness and the resentment and the contempt. He says, all that's not okay. And I'm coming after that too. So what does he actually say? Let's dive in a little bit more to, to verse 22. So he, he corrects that and then he says, in verse 22 says, but I, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So you see, they're, they're just saying, hey, if you murder, that can get you judged, get you put in jail. They're just saying, actually, you just got some anger between you and your brother. You're already liable to the judgment of God. You notice their, their reduction of the law wasn't worried about the vertical consequences. It wasn't worried about whether we're guilty before God or not. It was just worried about whether we get punished horizontally, civilly, right? Jesus just saying, hey, hey you, need to, you need to remember who you're going to stand before on judgment day. It's not going to be the civil magistrate. It's going to be a living and holy God. And, and when you have anger in your heart, you're already guilty in front of him. And he cares about that too. So what Jesus is doing, explaining that the original command not only forbids, so he's not like adding amendments to the original command of thou shalt not murder. He's saying, hey, that actually forbids not just the outward act of taking a life, but actually every thought and word and, 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 and fantasy and dream uh, that seeks to destroy someone's life is forbidden in that short and concise verse of thou shall not commit murder. So for Jesus, what he's saying is, hey, whether you're killing somebody with a knife or whether you're engaging in assassination of their character through anger, through belittling, through gossip, right, calling them a fool, all of that is part and parcel of the same inward sickness. That's what he's saying. This is connected to the same issue. Now, he's not saying that it doesn't make any difference whether you stab somebody or whether you gossip. There is, there is a difference, right? Sometimes we take the whole, you know, God's, you know, uh, all sin is equal before God. We, we take that a little too far, and we go, like, well, it really doesn't matter if you've murdered or if you've gossiped. Well, I mean, it does, right? 
Taking a life is, is far more consequential here for sure than, you know, gossiping. But Jesus is saying, hey, it has the same origin point. It has the same issue. It has the same um, sickness that leads to both, that, that leads to this animosity that's in our heart. And he's saying, we're not just going to worry about keeping people from getting actually stabbed or killed or stoned, but rather we're actually going to come at the behavior, the, the issue, the heart condition that drives all of that. So he's saying, yeah, the civic courts may only judge you for the physical act of murder, but when you have hate, animosity, and anger in your heart, you're already under judgment with God. So Jesus cares about that, what's going on in our hearts, not just what we do with our hands. Okay, but here's the deal. This is not a new idea. Okay, Jesus isn't here and be like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I know we were just worried about, ang- about murder before, but we're actually going to address anger now in the new covenant. It's actually, anger's always been on God's radar. He's always been concerned about it. Just a few, just a snapshot of verses from the Old Testament. Psalm 37 and 8 says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Okay, you see this theme. Anger, stewing on it, holding on to it, it only leads to bad things. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 30, 33, I love this one. It says, For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. You get the word picture there? When, that, when pressure is applied, if you're holding on to anger within you, when pressure is applied, it's going to lead to conflict, to strife, and to the same heart motivation that in, ends up terminating in murder. When pressure is applied, it will lead to strife. But we, we got to stop for a second, because is anger always bad? Is anger itself the sin? No, actually, right, we, we see in Ephesians 4 uh, that, that we're told to be angry, but not to sin in our anger. What's that about? Well, here, here's the sin, like anger in its purest form is actually a response to the, to the goodness, to the righteousness the, uh, that God has put in place being threatened and being attacked. We should have a response of anger in that. Right? If, if people try to just present to you this docile, feathered hair, soft-handed, meek and mild only Jesus, you need to remember that Jesus went into the temple, made whips. This was not even impulsive. This was intentional. He's angry. I'm going to make some whips. Right? I don't know how long that takes, but it's a minute. Right? He's over there like plotting this. And then he goes in and drives people out with the whips and turns over the tables like Jesus gets angry. But the difference is Jesus has righteous anger and he doesn't sin in that anger. So there is a place for anger in the, the, the life of a child of God, but it needs to be aligned with what makes God angry and it needs to not lead to resentment with other of God's people. Does that make sense? So it, you should get angry. Let, let, me just, let me just tell you, when we talk about a subject like we did last week, you should get angry about the issue of abortion and how many children are being murdered in our, in our country every year and how flippant the propaganda is and the messaging is. You should get angry about that. But you know what? You shouldn't harbor bitterness and get angry about young women who have that as a part of their story. 
and who were actually told by their parents, this is probably the best option, or their doctor, or all the above, or who were pressured by their boyfriend or girlfriend, or who just didn't know what else to do. You shouldn't harbor bitterness and anger toward them, right? You get angry at the issue, and it should compel you to do something, right? But it doesn't compel you to stew and to burn and, and to have bitterness and resentment toward an individual, but rather toward an issue. Does that make sense? You hear about the, the, slight, the human trafficking. That should make you angry. You should want justice for those things, racial injustice, any of those things. You should have a response of anger, but with to do something with it that is productive, right? And if it's toward an issue that compels you to action that's good and right, you're following along with the Lord in that. But if it, if it lands on someone in particular and you're, you get focused in on a relationship and you begin to stew and to think on them, that's when we have issues. That's what's going to lead to strife. That's what's going to lead eventually even to murder. So um, in the New Testament, we see from 1 John 3, 15, it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John's saying, hey, when you hear about somebody being a murderer, you make some judgments about them, don't you? You go, oh my gosh, that's, how, could they, how could you kill somebody, right? And you think, well, that person, there's no way they're, they're, they're headed to heaven. There's no way that the life of Christ lives in them. You make some judgments about it. John's saying, yeah, um, also those of you who have hate in your heart toward your brother, same. Like, it, it, that has no more place in the kingdom of God than the person who actually committed the physical act. Like, we don't tolerate hate and anger and resentment any more than we do somebody actually taking a life. And so he's saying, hey, same thing. We need to be just as vigilant about that. So this is not a new concept, right, to be concerned about anger. Like, the Bible's always had that in there. But what is new, what Jesus is presenting as new, is an opportunity to actually change the heart issues. That's what is new. Jesus is saying the gospel is here. The, the spirit of God is coming to live inside of you. I'm going to take away your hearts of stone. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be redeemed and, and receive a heart of flesh. That's new. To actually have your behavior change from the inside out, to not just be white-knuckling something and just managing your, your anger and, and just keeping it from getting to a place that makes you lose your job or your faith or your family. That's not what he's inviting you to. Instead, he's just saying, hey, come to me. This is a whole new deal. I can change you from the inside out. This is, again, the culmination of the, the prophets had promised. So Jesus is correcting and connecting and saying this is here. He's here to give us new hearts with the law of God written on them. So the power of the gospel is the only thing that actually has the power to address the issues of our heart. But how do we do that, okay? So Jesus is going to keep going and get even more practical. How do we do that, right? Can we just get some five steps of how to stop being angry in 2022? Not exactly. It's going to be a little bit harder work. But what Jesus is going to say is, sum it up this way, to deal with anger, we need to recognize it, and we need to reconcile it. We need to recognize it, and then we need to reconcile it. So let's look at what he says to do. He says, verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, so what's he saying here? He's saying, listen, not just about the act, but when, when you go and, and insult your brother or n- call him particular names, fool doesn't have quite the impact that it would for them, but we'll talk a little bit about that. But, but here's, I, I think what Jesus is saying is, hey, watch your thoughts and B, watch your mouth. Watch your thoughts, watch your mouth. If, so you might be here like, I don't really think I'm angry. Can we just move on? Can you get the next thing, Jordan? I don't think I'm an angry person. 
But before you make that conclusion, ask yourself some questions. Right? What kind of thoughts do you have toward people? The, the, the idea of, of insults there, your Bible may have a footnote around that, that that says the Greek word is actually raka, and it's a term of abuse, right? So he says, whoever insults his brother who says raka, like this is, this is an idea of, of contempt. This, is, this, is a, this is, comes with a vitriol. This is, a, this is something where you're, you're labeling somebody. It, it kind of communicates disgust, right? It's this idea of contempt. You've made a judgment on the person themselves, right? So maybe ask these sorts of questions. Who, who have you gotten there with? Who is it that when you see them, you will go in another aisle at the grocery store to avoid talking to them? Because you just immediately get emotional. You immediately get angry. You immediately get defensive. Maybe you just hear their name, hear their voice, hear a reference to them, and it just just triggers you. Who is that for you? Here's the, here's the hard truth. It could be somebody living in your own house, right? It could be, it could be a, a child that, that, is, that is really just stretched and pulled on the relationship in such a way that, man, it just triggers you. It could be a spouse, right? How many of y'all have known somebody? You just thought everything was fine. Sat next to them at church, arm around each other, it was all good, and the next thing you know, they're getting divorced. And you're like, what was, what was going on? I thought you were good, right? That's why we always say every week, don't, don't pretend. Good grief, don't pretend. Right? You smell smoke, come tell us, then we want to help. We'll still show up when you call us after the house burned down, but there's not a lot we can do. Right? You start smelling smoke in your marriage, you start having resentment and, and bitterness and Contempt toward your spouse. That's not, that's not normal. It's not okay. Don't sit in that. Pastor Darren used to talk about this, uh, this psychologist that, that did this thing called the Love Lab, which sounds a little dirty, but it's not. It was just this observation of people that, um, and, and he, would, he would have somebody interview them. And, and, he's, and this guy got to the point where over, uh, like, if he watched them for an hour, he could predict with 100%, with 100% accuracy whether they'd be married in like five years. But even just 15 minutes, he was like 90% accurate. And what he was looking for, what he could notice is when there was contempt, when there was disgust, when there was that just posture of them, right? It's got to that point. It was terminal. Now, that guy's not talking in terms of the gospel. It's not terminal, right? Jesus has the power to save any person and any marriage. But if you have noticed hints of that, or you have resentment and contempt toward your spouse, that's a huge issue, right? You need to bring that to the gospel. But it's not just your spouse, it's anybody. Who is it that, that you, you kind of have that thought about, right? That you find yourself wishing that they would fail, right? Hoping that they don't succeed, hoping that they get found out, hoping that, you know, you can't tell everybody, but hoping somebody else does, right? You, you just kind of, you, you, you sort of secretly long for their demise. That's the idea of rocket. That's the idea of, of 
casting an insult on somebody. And, and it's tied to the next piece, which is, which is you know, watching your mouth. Sometimes, it, you know, sometimes all that's internal, but then it boils over, right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Then we say to them, you fool, right? That's verbalizing this inward struggle. That's, ver- that's putting words to this desire where, frankly, you want to see them dead. You're sort of, to, to them, to say you fool is sort of saying, you're not a human. You're not worth my time. You're not worth the air you breathe. That's sort of the idea behind the language there. It's harsh. You say, when you do that, the same sickness that drives somebody to actually pull the trigger or get out the knife is, is growing and brewing in you. It's the same sickness. It's the same root. So we have to recognize it. We have to recognize it and examine it. We have to go beyond re- recognize it and examine what does it tell us about us what you want to do is examine it and, t- and let it you know, tell you about them, right? You just want to keep mulling it over and looking at it. See, I remember what they did. And you want to tell about us, you know what they did, right? It makes you feel better about yourself and d- justified in your indignation, right? Or you're examining it for them. No, no, no. Examine it for you. Let it read you. Why are you so angry? My wife called me out on this last week, like a Friday, and I was mad, I guess. She told me that. She's like, you just kind of snapping on everybody. You seem like you're mad, Dave. I was like, I'm not mad. I was snapping on everybody. But I wasn't mad. That's what I thought, right? Next day, we came and gone. Another fight with her. Next day, another fight. And I was like, and, and then we were both in the office on Tuesday. She straight up scheduled an appointment with Tim for both of us, a uh, counselor here. And I was like, touche, fair enough. I needed that. Uh, she just like, she just called it out. And it was good. It was good for me. And you know what? I was mad. I did have anger. And you know what it was about? My ego. It was about not feeling like I was being appreciated enough. Not feeling like I was being validated enough. So I was getting real defensive. Anybody else? When you start examining, why does this make me so mad? You're going to start to learn a little bit about yourself. And what you'll find oftentimes is you're, you're, you're probably being defensive of your own ego, of your own reputation. Right? So recognize it and examine it. Ask those questions. Ask them with your spouse, with your community group. Right? This is what we exist for. Do life together. Say, hey, I'm really struggling. I'm getting mad at these points in the day or at these points in life or at this you know, comment that my boss makes every day. Why does it make me so mad? Right? You need to lay your junk out there. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other that you might be healed. Let's do that. Let's get it out there. Let's be honest about it. Now, you don't have to tell the other person, we're going to get to reconciliation. It doesn't mean you've got to air all your stuff. I really had, you know, uh, murder fantasies about you. You don't need to quite go there, but you need to get it out there. You need to be honest, right? You need to, you need to acknowledge the sin, right? Recognize it, examine it. And confess it, right? Acknowledge this, bring it to the Lord. But it's not just the negative. That's sort of like recognizing these things and, and addressing the negatives. Jesus is going to go even further into the positive. He says, not only should we recognize it, but we should be a people who are pursuing reconciliation. So we see that as we go on in verse 23. He says this. Um, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and, and you're there and you remember your brother has something against you, you should leave your gift there before the altar First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What in the world? 
What in the world? What Jesus is saying here is, we as God's people, it's not enough to just manage behavior. It's not enough to just be okay if they're not, you know, they're not mad at us. We need to be responsible for seeking peace and reconciliation whenever it depends upon us. We've looked at the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, right? We should be a people who are seeking radically to do what it takes to be reconciled at any cost to ourselves, that we should be pursuing reconciliation. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32 says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, and along with malice. Instead, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, and here's the deal, forgiving one another. Why? Because we're modeling after God and Christ forgiving us. Here's the deal, this is a gospel issue, church. Right? If you don't know this, God is angry at your sin. You understand that? God has a righteous anger, indignation, and wrath toward sin and toward sinners. That's you. That's me, right? He has every right. He has been offended. He has been ignored. He has been rebelled against, and he is angry about it. But you know what he did? He could have torched us all and been totally justified. I don't say that lightly. We all deserve hell. You understand that, right? Like, if you're here, you're like, oh, just maybe they can help me be a better person. No, you're a terrible person. You deserve hell. So am I. And so are the people sitting next to you. But Jesus is the one we're here to talk about. And he's the one who's not a terrible person. He's the one with perfect righteousness. And he's the one who gets down off of his throne and comes toward us. The offending party, he steps toward us to bring reconciliation by the blood of his cross. Amen? That's what Jesus does for us. He steps toward us so that we may be saved. He sheds his own blood. The Bible's going to tell us in a minute, we're going to look at that we should do whatever we can within our power to live at peace with all people. Listen, Jesus took his power and says, I'm going to make a way for all people to have peace with me. It's an amazing gospel story. It's an amazing gospel truth that we can have reconciliation with a God that we have offended with our sin over and over and over again. And it is because of that, Paul says in Ephesians, hey, forgive each other. Good grief. Whatever they've done to you, whatever they've done to you, whatever you've done to them, like it doesn't hold a candle to what we did to a holy God. And it's been nailed to the cross. Now listen, as I'm saying all this, I'm reminded that some of you have, have suffered unspeakable sins against you. And I don't want to make light of that. And I don't want to make light of the process that you'll need to go through to get to forgiveness. Because it will not be easy and it will not be cheap. But Jesus cares about you to en enough to say, you still need to go there. Because if not, it will eat you away. If you hold on to that bitterness, that resentment, that anger, it's not hurting them, the people who harmed you. It's hurting you. And so this is why we seek reconciliation. And, and, it's, and, and he shows us that it's necessary that we seek reconciliation because he, tells, he shows us this, this, there's this guy that is worshiping, right? He's, he's in a church service. He's bringing his, his uh, sacrifice before the Lord and he's there and he remembers, oh my gosh, someone's upset with me. There, there's someone 
with which I've not done all that I can do to bring about reconciliation. So he says, well, it's not, okay, yeah, I need to make a note. I'll get to that tomorrow morning. He says, leave it there and go find that person and be reconciled and then come back and finish worshiping. Why? Because it's necessary. We don't get to just cheapen the grace of Jesus by saying, you know what, I'm a Christian. I'm going to come here. I'm going to sing songs and then I'm going to offend whoever I want or I'm going to let everybody, you know, whoever wants to be offended to me can just be offended to me and I don't even care. I'm just going to come back to church and sing and, and, and we just got a trail of bodies behind us. It doesn't work that way. You're coming and standing before a holy God, and you're talking about the vertical reconciliation. Guess what? He's going to send you back out horizontally. This is a great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't get away with just worrying about the vertical relationship. He's going to send us back out into the horizontal relationship. We need to be a people who are reconciling, actively pursuing and seeking reconciliation. Verse 25 and 26 are going to say, not only is it necessary, but it's urgent. He's going to switch analogies a bit. He's going to say, <clears throat> uh, he's going to sort of go from, uh, uh, you know, talking about, you know, brother to brother kind of offense and into sort of legal um, jurisprudence stuff. In 25 and 26, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus is using the story of someone who's in a lawsuit with somebody else. And he says, hey, you need to settle that quickly and outside of court, even if it's costly. And here's why. Because if you don't, it's going to lead to you losing your cool. Tempers are going to flare. Things are going to be said. Things are going to be done that you're going to regret to the point you may end up locked up because of your nonsense, right? That's what Jesus is saying. It's like, if you don't go the extra mile to make sure this is reconciled, it may grip a hold of you in such a way that the behaviors, the actions that people see in that courtroom not only do not resemble the people, you know, what people know of you, but they certainly don't re resemble what you're saying you know of God. Paul tells us this elsewhere. Hey, we shouldn't be, we don't, we don't take each other to court in the kingdom of God, like we handle it, right? We handle it within the church. We handle those disputes. We settle with one another. We go above and beyond. We outdo one another of showing honor. Like that's the sort of kingdom ethic that he's talking about here. And it's all tied to anger. It's all tied to the anger that will lead to murder. Jesus is saying, there's a reason that people get so angry that they end up taking a life. Don't wait till you're at that brinking point when the lights are blinking red to address your anger issues. You need to come way back here to the compulsions of your heart, when you start wishing harm upon people, when you start wanting to take from them like they took from you, when you start wishing that they were dead, when you start talking about them to other people as though they don't matter, Jesus says, there are the red blinking lights. There is huge warning concerns. So, Jesus is giving some practical wisdom here, but it's more than that. It, 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 he's saying this will drain your life. It, it, what he's saying is if you keep holding on to that anger, no matter how justified you are, it will take everything from you. Okay, That's what he's saying here. It, you will never get out of it until you've paid the last penny. It'll take everything from you. It will consume you. So settle it quickly with urgency. How do we do that? Well, before we get into that, I, I, I mean, that, Jesus wants to guard our relationships. He wants to keep us from getting to that point of murderous action. But 
man, so many of us, we have broken relationships, don't we? Within our family, with our friends, people that used to be close to us that are no longer close. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this passage, makes a bold claim that most human relationships that are destroyed could have been preserved if there had been communication and action at the right time. I don't you think about that. He's saying most human relationships that end up getting destroyed and severed could have been preserved if there had been the right communication and action in the right time. So it's necessary. You can't stand before God while you have enmity between your brother and you, you know it. But it's urgent. Because if you don't move quickly, you might lose that relationship. You might lose your witness with that person. We need to be able to recognize it and move toward reconciliation with urgency. But here's the deal. Us moving toward reconciliation doesn't mean that reconciliation is always possible. It certainly doesn't mean that restoration is always possible. A guiding verse for us in this is Romans 12, Romans 12 18. And it says this. I mentioned it earlier. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Some of you have avoided those phone calls, those conversations, because you think you know how it's going to go, right? How many of you, you've thought about making the call? You know you need to. Maybe it's with a mom or a dad or, you know, grandpa, grandma. Maybe it's with an old friend. Maybe it's with a child that you're estranged from. I, I, like, but you think you know how they're going to respond, right? So you go, well, what's the point? They always just do this. What's the point? Well, the point is, you're not going to be judged for what they do. You will be judged for what you do. And Jesus says, hey, as much as it depends on you, be a person of reconciliation. So you go. You own your part. You go. You ask for forgiveness. You go. You say, let's be reconciled. If they won't, just keep praying for them. That's not on you. Right? And certainly, even if they do forgive you or you forgive them, that doesn't mean trust has to be restored in the same way it was before, okay? You can be reconciled, forgiveness can happen, and it doesn't mean you allow them right back into your life the way you did before. That might not be wise in issues of abuse and issues of, of danger and things like that, right? You, but you can still move toward reconciliation. You could still bring about and accept forgiveness, so Jesus is saying, this will be the marks of my people. My people will be peacemaking people. My people will be reconciliation seeking people. This will be kingdom living. We don't harbor anger, Jesus says. We don't backbite and gossip. We don't plot against people. We don't hold grudges. We don't talk behind their back. We don't make sure that people know in the form of a prayer request or whatever other nonsense. Did you hear about so-and-so? No, no, we shut our mouths. If we have an issue in it, we go to them. And if we don't, we don't talk about it. That's kingdom living. Jesus is saying we radically attack these issues of malice and slander that all lead to, to, to murder. Kingdom living has no place for those things. Instead, we recognize the sin when it starts to grow in our hearts. While it's still inside of us in the form of anger, we confess it to God. We bring it under the fountain of grace. Even when we don't see how we could ever let it go, we continue to bring it under the fountain of grace. We continue to hold it to Jesus and say, I don't know. I want to do this. I don't know. I want to keep this. But here it is. And we keep asking him to take it. And with his spilled blood, there is Hope, there is power to be reconciled and to have that transformative experience from the inside out, to be set free from that. So here's the deal, church. We've got to take this seriously. If you just hear that, go, yeah, it was a good talk. We don't really gain much. James warns us from that. He says, don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer. 
Somebody who's a hearer of the word but doesn't do it. It's like somebody who looks in the mirror, walks away and forget what they saw. Make sense? You don't just hear a word from Jesus about what's going on in your heart and be challenged by it and then go, yeah, maybe. We're going to have a song of response here. Some of y'all, they're in the room. Don't wait. Jesus is really clear. You ever had that? You've been worshiping? God just brings somebody to your mind? He's going to do that. Respond to that prompting by going to him. Humility. Saying, hey, I want to be reconciled. Maybe they're not in the room. And if they're in the room, I mean it. Like, we can do that. This is a space of ministry. We've, worked, we've tried to work hard to make this final song, not just this invitation that you come to if you need to be saved or if your marriage is in a wreck or whatever, and oh, so-and-so's at the altar. Well, that's the stuff we've just been talking about. Don't do that. We're trying to make this a time of ministering to one another, carrying one another's burdens, praying for one another, okay? So, I mean that. We can go and do what Jesus just told us to do. People wonder, people ask you about it, you'd be like, I just, Jesus told me to. Care what you think. Excuse me, I'm going to that person next to you because Jesus told me to. Right? We can radically pursue reconciliation. And if they're not in the room, make a plan. Make a plan. Make that phone call today. Set up that meeting. Ask them to coffee. Drive to them. Whatever you got to do. As much as it depends on you, as much as it depends on us, let's be a people who live out the gospel. God forgave us. He forgave us. What in the world? Talk about somebody who could pull out a list you imagine God doing that? Us and the elders and I were reading a psalm the other day, and it just said, man, if everybody stood up in, in judgment, God could set them all back down with, with condemnation. The whole world. But he doesn't do that. He makes a way. So, if you've been restored to God, let's be restored to one another. Let's kill anger at its source. Let's be people who don't tolerate it as we seek reconciliation. Let's pray. God, help us. We need it. Many of us are angry. We don't even know it. We wouldn't call ourselves angry, but we, if we're honest, the, the reactions, the responses we have in our life to certain things, it's really clear. I pray you would set some folks free from that today. I pray that you bring reconciliation. I pray that you would work in us here in this place. Help us, Jesus. We need it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.